G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. You might be excited by the idea that there's a new research paper that's just been published recently in a journal called Paleontology. It's produced a recipe for a DIY fossil. They packed modern lizard limbs, all right, gets a bit gruesome, doesn't it, chicken feathers and plant material, basically as fresh as you can get into clay tablets and then heated these in standard lab ovens under pressure. And after some experimentation, the researchers found that 24 hours seemed to be the sweet spot for mimicking the maturation of a fossil with the right heat and time. Well, we'll talk fossils today. We'll talk floods and we'll talk sediments And you might have a question when it comes to issues to do with creation and evolution. Our special guest in this coming hour, Dr. Ron Neller, is a geomorphologist. I will tell you what that means in just a few moments, who was once a supporter of geological evolution. Now he's part of the team at Creation Ministries International. I want to make a special welcome back to 2020 to you, Ron Neller. Good morning, Neil, and thank you very much. It's great to be back. Ron, you love... Everything to do with sediments, uh, with floods, the formation of land masses, uh, all sorts of things that are the big stuff. Uh, When we hear of fossils being created in a day, uh, this has got a special interest for you. And even though you're not an expert on fossils, you are an expert on how fossils in some sense are formed. Uh, Give us a little bit of an insight into, uh, you know, some of the inconsistencies that we seem to take for granted. But, uh, you know, a little bit of science comes out, uh, exposes these sorts of myths. And as Christians, we need to take special note of those. Uh, Yes, Neil. In fact, up front, I am not a a paleontologist. I could not tell one bone from another. But I worked with biologists most of my life in my career as I traveled throughout the Amazon or China or Europe. And uh, I was the so-called sedimentologist, the person who would look at the environment in which you might find fossil bones or where particularly floods were occurring and and so on. And I personally would have a, a, an argument or two with a paleontologist because they were looking at the bones and then trying to make an interpretation on the bones alone. They'd find fragments, try and put them together, and then use a little bit of imagination to create a creature or of some sort like that. It was all good fun, and I, and I enjoyed being with them. But I think by largely ignoring the environment in which it was found, particularly the sediment itself that surrounded the fossils, because the sediment, I I can work out where it came from. I can work out how it got there. And so I could add a lot to that about the nature of the environment in which they died um, and then how they were created. So, yes, I I just love dirt. So not the fossils, (laughs) but uh, I love the dirt. And uh, and I still still go around and... uh, you know, challenge passport control when I'm carrying dirt in bags and all these sorts of things <laughs> around the world. Um, but no, it's. Uh, I think there's a lot to be revealed in the sediment 
which surrounds the fossil uh, fragments. Uh, digging up dirt is one of those things that paleontologists n- normally would like to do. Uh, how the dirt settles and how the fossils get there in the first place is where your expertise lies. And we'll get to crocodiles in just a few moments. I love talking about crocodiles on the radio and I know that listeners love that too. It's something very Australian when we talk about crocodiles and I know that our listeners in North Queensland who've been dealing with that flood disaster and crocodiles in the town in Townsville and other towns in North Queensland. We'll get to crocodiles in just a few moments, but this idea of fossils and floods and this coming back to this uh, this article, how quickly you can form a fossil, this does challenge some of those ideas that people have about fossils and millions of years. Uh, it does indeed, because the the foundation you'll find on any website or in any particular paleontological article or a geologic article is that you do need uh, an abundant supply of sediment. In fact, uh, what you'll find when you when you check on these sites or these publications is they list rapid burial and deep burial consistent. The two must go hand in hand, but it equally has to be a sediment that is capable of doing ha- having other attributes in the actual longer term process. And, and therein lies the challenge is that the, the the acceptance in the scientific world is lots of sediment and continued sediment. But I guess the question I'm asking is, from where? How? Because when we look at international data, we do not see a pattern consistent with fossil creation. In fact, I would challenge, uh, it's a bit bold, but uh, I don't think we see many fossils being created today. Okay, so we might assume, and perhaps uh, evolutionists might assume, that if it's going to be formed as a sedimentary fossil, uh, that it would be near a coastal region or near a river system, but fossils are found all over the place, remote outback areas and we might get on to some uh, you know fossil discoveries in outback areas and how they might have formed but they happen not just around water course areas what does that say to us about history well the the important point there is that a fossil uh, is found predominantly in what you would call a flood sediment now whilst we might find them in different environments the actual the actual fossilization process was triggered by essentially a flood. Now, people do talk about estuaries and all those, but it's about flowing water in all of those cases. So, uh, yes, there are other ways to create fossils. You read about them all the time, whether it's, uh, you know, from landslides and that, but they are so minor. Uh, over 99.9%, I would, I would say, quite comfortably, are found in flood-derived fossils. Now, all we're saying is that the, at the moment of the creation, there was a flood there. So whether it was in the the uh, let's say the arid region, as as I as I was in Africa, or in the Arctic region, as I was in Finland, the foundation is still that there was a flood in that environment in the past. Now let's just quickly uh, clarify your qualification here. Given that you travelled the world and uh, you have stories to tell from the Amazon and from all sorts of parts of Asia and uh, wonderful stories about the way that uh, land formations have, have come about, 
someone who is a geomorphologist, and I ask you this each time we talk because undoubtedly there'll be some listeners who didn't catch the definition last time, but a geomorphologist, give us a little insight into this area of expertise that you have. A geomorphologist is a person who looks at landscape. In other words, we look at the form of the planet's surface. So, yes, we have to have some geologic background because that's what's underneath and it does affect uh, the the surface features, Uh, but we also have to integrate that or look at the connection then with atmospheric processes such as rainfall and and other atmospheric processes. So we look at how current processes operating in the atmosphere interact with the foundational elements and and therefore I ask the question as I travel the world, uh, why would this river flood at this time? Why is this mountain here? Why is this floodplain larger than the one over there? Why is this hill shaped like that? So that was my constant desire to understand uh, how that landscape came to look like that. And people talk about, oh, you know, that sounds exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. It's uh, I- I've seen movies about typhoon chasers, okay. and uh, those those people are just little, oh. They're scared of the typhoon. They place equipment in it and they run away. You can't do that with a flood. You have to get in it and measure velocities and all sorts of things. So was I ever washed away? Yes. Knocked unconscious? Yes. Rescued out of drains? Yes. It was a great life, mate, I tell you. But my question was, how did that landscape adopt that morphology or that shape? Didn't your mother ever tell you not to play in the drains? <laughs> in those days, we didn't have mobiles <laughs> into the Amazon. <laughs> Ron, you used to be a geologic evolutionist. Is that the way you describe the way you believed in the evolutionary process as you were developing as a scientist? Yes, I was raised in a non-Christian family and went to a uh, non-Christian school. So all I was exposed to was the concept of a long period of time. Now, I really wasn't interested in the biological aspects. I'm not that sort of a guy. Um, But then you automatically take that into the geologic or... uh, morphology elements of the planet and of course as I as I roamed the world I developed courses and taught and I spoke of millions of years of an evolving landscape and how that would come to be so uh, yeah yeah it's it's it, it pervades across the entire sciences and so a dramatic turnaround came in an experience that you had. How did it happen for you that uh, all of this understanding about uh, this evolutionary geology, how did that come about, that there's a dramatic change? It was actually the evidence as I travelled the world. What I did not see as I travelled the Arctic or the uh, the Amazon or the Libyan deserts, well, I did not see uh, long periods of time in whatever I was looking at. I could explain it in another way. What I began to see was a a landscape of quite youthful age where we are taught to look at it as an old landscape, but that's not what I was measuring in processes, measuring in shape. And so I began to question the very existence. So I argued that maybe catastrophism is a feature of the past, which now many scientists accept because the data does point to catastrophism. And uh, that didn't immediately make me a Christian. It was actually the uh, um, challenges put on by university staff when I started to say maybe there is a God. Um, When a professor says that, it doesn't go down too well. 
And, and of course, uh, the reactions that you got from professors when you said that, uh, that didn't uh, dissuade you or make you fall into line. It actually made you double down your efforts to find out whether this was true or not. Exactly. I, I'd spent 30 years roaming the world. And so what I had seen in all different cultural environments and, and in, uh, so I, I just said, no, the data says to me it is young. And it was only one younger scientist who challenged me and um, demanded to prove that God existed. And uh, I was really hesitant to do this because I didn't, I, I suspected a God existed, but I didn't go to, you know. You weren't well trained. I, I wasn't well trained in that. Yeah. I just told her to go away and read the book, which yeah. was the Bible, <laughs> <laughs> and she did. But she became more of of a problem in those days. Challenged me more because she was an atheist. So one day I just gave up and said, "All right, I'll take you to a church," because she wanted to prove that God did not exist. And uh, I took her to a church, and um, on that day, this atheist who walked into the church wanting to prove God did not exist, and an evolutionary professor who suspected God did exist but didn't want to know him, that day we both gave our lives to Christ. Our special guest this hour is Dr. Ron Neller, a geomorphologist, was once a supporter of geologic evolution. Now he's a part of the team at Creation Ministries International. He's taking questions, and you can be a part of our conversation, 1-800-316-316, or leave a message, a question on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Let's take a call. Anne is on the line from Labrador in Queensland. Hello, Anne. Welcome along. Thank you. How are you? All right? Good. Very well. Um, listen, um, I went to Cooper PD uh, probably a year ago now, and when I went, I went to a place and they showed us the uh, fossils made out of opal. I just want to know whether that would have been from the water or would have been from something else that was in, in there. And good question. Are you an opal expert, Ron? I'm not a Nobel expert, Anne, but we do have someone on the team who is, and that's the person called is Dr. Taz Walker, who has published a number of articles and others have as well. Now, I think you are on the right track. Opals can be involved in the fossil formation, but I, I think the foundation of that from our perspective, as opposed to what you saw at Cooper Pedy, is very, very different. So I'm just going to plug our creation site for the moment so you can get a very detailed answer. It's creation.com. If you've got that, creation.com, go into there and type in the word uh, opal yeah. or type in the word Taz Walker opal. Yeah, and you yeah. will get a, 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 I'm sure there's a bunch of articles actually, because I have seen that area. As I say, it's not my expertise, but we do have a number of people who have written on that topic. And so okay. they can certainly give you. Now, if that doesn't give you the answer you're looking for, you, if, if we can't answer that question, you'll notice on the site that we have a Q&A capacity. Q&A, question and answer, in which case then, write your question into that and we will, within a two-week period, absolutely get an answer back to you from another expert. So sorry I can't help you there, Anne, but uh, you you are are making a right connection. 
And, okay, and okay. it's fine. Thank you. You <laughs> might do a little research yourself, Anne, too, because in my understanding, even though when you are on the opal mining fields, uh, people who are leading the tours will tell you that these took millions of years to develop, but they are also able to be grown in a laboratory in just a month or two. They can so, be, absolutely. Uh, Anne, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. Uh, let's tackle a question from a Facebook uh, uh, listener, Robert, who says, how come people assume that the fossil record is supporting or indicating their predefined beliefs about how the geological layers were established? Any thoughts for Robert on uh, this sort of idea of, uh, you know, people uh, having a predefined belief? Well, I think I, I may have captured that in my earlier introduction, that it's a um, today we're not given an option we're actually taught to believe like that. And I went for, honestly, 50 years in academia accepting what I had been taught as a belief system that these sediments were laid down over billions of years or you know, at least millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, and that fossils were created over that long period of time. So not sure, have I understood the question there correctly, Neil? Uh, how come people assume the fossil record is supporting their predefined beliefs? And uh, I think you do answer that when you say uh, that this is the thing that you've been conditioned to believe in academia because in our academic institutions this has become an accepted way of understanding how things happen. Yes, and we have, an, we have incredible difficulty in, in dating fossils. So it's often done by correlation to other attributes. So again, it is a very, it's a very weak proposal that is put forward uh, on occasion. So one makes a lot of assumptions when one goes down that line of, of linking stratigraphy and sediments, history, fossils, and there's, there is certainly a lot of interpretation. If I can put it that way politely, an incredible amount of interpretation is required which I might call creativity in thinking. Creative license. It is creative license. Uh, look, I've been desperate to get to your story about crocodiles because you have done significant research, Ron, into crocodiles. And when it comes to these issues of sediments and fossil formation, uh, what's so important about this research that you've done? Actually, it's not research I've done. I've actually reviewed research that has been done, and it's good research. I don't challenge researchers, even though I'm a creationist. Some of them do brilliant research. But there was – I've actually published an article in the magazine on, on a crocodile study done in Australia with infant crocodiles, and the researcher was trying to understand how the crocodiles can remain articulated. How can they be found in such a complete condition so often in the Australian landscape and elsewhere in the world? So what they did was they actually – buried some crocodiles, some infant ones, under 20 centimetres of sediment. Others they let, uh, f just threw it in the water, uh, dead crocodiles, and uh, see what happens. And uh, others they, they did that until the crocodile actually sank to the bottom and then they covered it with sediment. So they were trying to recreate different elements. I guess the most important thing that came out of it um, is that it confirmed for the first time that rapid burial and deep burial was necessary. In fact, the, the figure that excites me the most is they buried the crocodiles in 20 centimetres of sediment, and two of them, and one of them bloated and broke out. So 20 centimetres of sediment deposited on top of a crocodile 
instantaneously did not keep that crocodile in the fossilization process. And those that were not covered in sediment became quite what we call disarticulated. They were not necessarily complete. They were scattered. Even in a quiet laboratory environment, the skeleton did not settle in its total. Yet when we go out there into the field and look at the fossils, we are stunned, particularly in the marine area, of the millions of fossils that are absolutely in perfect condition. So in other words, if they're not covered in sediment, it won't work that well. So when we talk about this biblical understanding of a major flood, and yes, we're talking about Noah here and the flood, uh, when we talk about these, uh, as we talk about cat- uh, catastrophes, uh, this is one that comes to mind, and perhaps there were many catastrophes that we were not aware of, but, but when we talk about the creation account, Noah's flood, uh, these sorts of things, uh, there's not, uh, th- this is not inconsistent with uh, your view of the way that these things could have happened. Not inconsistent at all, because we have fossil beds with billions of fossils um, deposited over, say, one and a half million square kilometres. Now, I don't know what flood you would imagine would would bury... A very big one, obviously. A very big one <laughs> would bury uh, billions of creatures and leaf material and organic material over... Incredible areas, even in South Africa, just a billion sit in one spot. Well, Dr. Ron Neller is our guest. He's a geomorphologist who once was a supporter of geological evolution. Now he's a part of the team at Creation Ministries International. And Ron, as we get into this conversation, let's dig a little bit deeper into something that's happening right now. And that is the cleanup that's going on in North Queensland. They had a, uh, a tragic flood. Uh, particularly around the city of Townsville. Uh, They're talking about a one in 500 year occurrence. So this is a big flood they've had in Townsville. Is it possible that out of the sediments that will form after the flood, uh, that there could be any sort of fossil formation? What are your thoughts? Very unlikely. In fact, studies have been done in uh, off the east coast of USA following floods, and the actual rate of sediment deposition is so shallow. It looks dramatic in the media. And when you look at the total amount of sediment it, from the measurement stations that they have, it looks pretty impressive. But then you've got to look at where does it get deposited and how deep is it being deposited. And when you do that, uh, you find that it can be quite quite dispersed, quite shallow. It's covering a large area, as they have said. And uh, a 500-year, look, that sounds dramatic. Yes, we chase 1,000-year events as well. Again, we did not find any capacity to create fossils. So the Townsville flood was a big flood. Uh, There's a lot of people affected. A lot of water has fallen on North Queensland uh, with those weather events. But that flood is just too little to actually be effective in fossil formation. So when we, when we appreciate that there are fossils found all over the world, that something much, much bigger than a one in 500 year flood had to be the, the cause of that. That's correct. We have, we have tens of thousands of gauging stations around the world that monitor sediment and uh, stream flow. And, um, it's, it's gone on for over 70 years. And I was particularly involved in 100 year event and, um, Honestly, the deposition of sediment we find is is 10 centimetres or less. So it doesn't even match that crocodile need to hold a small crocodile underwater. So the actual rates of sediment deposition around the world are 
way lower than you would expect. Again, it's a public perception when you look at rivers flowing and you look at the color in particular, which is probably the turbidity or color, you think there's a lot of sediment. And there is. But when it's distributed over a large area, so if I give you some examples, for example, uh, if, we, if we look at the ocean floor, for example, studies there show that it's about 50 millimeters over a thousand years. That's not going to fossilize a cockroach. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking cockroaches, when you're talking baby crocodiles, uh, let's even extend this to the fossilization of a full-sized mature crocodile. What about when you've got big dinosaurs and they're being forced into sediments and becoming fossilized. This gives us an impression about just the sort of size of flood necessary to actually have any fossil formation at all, but certainly of something that is so large as a dinosaur. That's the question I, I keep exploring, because how does one explain in with from any of our sedimentary records on this planet how you would even cover a small dinosaur, let alone a T-Rex? And... Um, uh, as I've said, even, even tsunamis don't create that. Uh, a study done on the Indonesian tsunami revealed that about uh, the deposition of sediment was about 10 centimetres. Now, I can't see a T-Rex being fossilised after a global tsunami of, of, of that size, which deposits 10 centimetres of sediment across the area. Uh, again, it's our perception that these are dramatic events when, in fact, they're not. What covered those Billions of fossils had to be something of absolutely catastrophic global proportions. Ron, there's some other disasters that are unfolding around the nation right now and of recent times, and it still continues today, as to how they're dealing with all of these fish that have died in the Murray-Darling River system. As I understand it, up to a million native fish have died in the Menindee Lakes. That's part of the Murray-Darling River system. Real concern in those areas over the health of the waterways. But there are some things that shed light on this idea of fossil formation when we start to look at what happens when animals die in the water. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on how that disaster has something to, 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 to shed some light in our conversation today? From, from a, um, um, uh, I guess from a communication with people, I've loved sharing this particular event because one of, one of the, the, the assumptions made is that that a fish who be, that became fossilized sank to the bottom. Now, they didn't. That's not what happens, and fishermen know that. The fish rose to the top. Now, once they rise to the top, what are they subject to? They're subject to bloating. They're subject to predation. They're, they're subject to just being torn apart. So the very foundation of creating a fossil from any of those sort of uh, dead fish is, is virtually impossible. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a great example that marine organisms do float. But by the way, just to add to that, the sediment in the flood, this may not be known by many viewers, the sediment in the flood always comes on the rising stage. It's called a hysteretic effect. In other words, the sediment peak occurs before the flood peak. So by the time you've actually got the major flood, and at the tail end of the flood, there is no sediment. So even if those, fossil, those fossils, if even those fish drop to the bottom now, after two weeks floating, there is no sediment to cover them. So yes, from an environmental point of view, it's a tragedy. From a fossil point of view, it's an impossibility. Okay, let's take this another step deeper, because when you've got a, uh, a dead creature, 
that is covered by sediment, there's some other needs here for the actual formation of the fossil. Uh, and we were talking about the, you know, the formation of a fossil in a single day. And of course, they were heating and pressurizing. So the heat and the pressure, all of those things are important too. How does that uh, impact on our thoughts about God as creator? Well, the, the fossils do require pressure and heat. Absolutely. So in other words, again, this shallow sedimentation doesn't work. It needs to be deep coverage in sediment. To create that. So even in their mimicking, when the scientists try to mimic fossilization processes, they have to use what they know is occurring out there, and that is that it's deep burial and rapid burial. And so that's what they copy. But in the past, as you've pointed out, they've actually not adopted or they have not placed sediment in the actual experiment. It's what's called a uh, – uh, the actual experiment is called a uh, – it's, it's sort of a maturation uh, experiment – and so what they do is they, they use the maturation experiment. They've used pressure and temperature in the past, but not the sediment. And only, this is how they achieved it in one day, only when they used the sediment did they achieve spectacular fossilization occurring. Interesting point. Why the sediment? Okay, well, let's talk some more about that sediment. Does the Bible shed any light on the idea of sediment that might follow a major catastrophic flood event? I mean, we're talking something here that perhaps uh, God doesn't really need to convey because clever people will work out that uh, there is sediment that settles after a flood. Uh, what else can we understand from, say, a scriptural foundation about uh, the, the sorts of things we talk about with a major worldwide flood event? Good question. Um, and from a CMI perspective, we were not there. So we're very cautious in in uh, prediction or extrapolation. But I will point out there is many pieces of evidence in our landscape, which I just was studying as I traveled the world. You will find uh, boulder fields on the top of plateaus, which indicate when you look at the actual mechanics of those boulders, there's one plateau with a billion rounded boulders on top. So in the highest part of the landscape, you've got uh, you know all of these fossils that are well-rounded, and we are able to calculate attributes of that flood. So you, we do calculate that the flood flow was, was flowing at over 100 kilometers per hour, and in the highest landscape, it had to be doing over 60 meters in depth. Now, I don't know of any flood you've ever seen that does that. <laughs> now, so when the other evidence points to that, it then gives more confirmation of a global flood but we were not there. So I can't tell you what the true velocity was, what the sediment. All I, what, what I do know from the Bible is is the Lord makes a, a, a wonderful description of how he pulls the earth apart. Now, that moment, whenever the earth is pulled apart, that's what I call the hysteretic effect. That's when the sediment is released, right in the initial phases. And so that's why the first uh, or the dominant fossil feature will be those that are affected by the first sediment as the earth bursts forth. And that's why most of it is marine. Okay. I'm just thinking back to an earlier conversation that I had with you, and perhaps it's worth revisiting if we're talking about sediments and sedimentary rocks and such things. And I recall in a conversation, and this goes back a little bit of uh, a bit of time, uh, but as rock, Uluru, as you shared in a previous conversation, is in fact a sedimentary it is. deposit. Now, for every listener who can think of Uluru right now and uh, a major global landmark, uh, the whole world almost knows about Uluru. And but how would 
a sedimentary formation like that have taken place in the middle of Australia in the history of our land. What are your thoughts on on the uh, that Uluru? Uluru is even more interesting than just sedimentary. It's actually tilted. In other words, the sedimentary layers are not horizontal to what you see. It's not horizontal to the landscape. They're actually tilted almost vertical. Now, that is not surprising given that the Lord said to Noah, basically, I will raise the land. So in the raising of the land, there would have been, at times, incredible distortions to the previously deposited sedimentary rocks. As they were raised and tilted, you would get that sort of feature. So the Lord said, I will raise the land. He raised it with his hand. And he also lowered the seafloor. He says that. I will lower uh, that area. But what you've, what you've got to look at there is that the, the entire area is a sedimentary area. And so it's been, uh, it was subject to what we call the post-flood runoff as well. And that's what excites me and why I want to get into the McDonnell Ranges and so on, because you will find canyons that rip right through the middle of ranges and uh, mountain ranges. And that just can't occur naturally. It's got to be a massive offflow and the, and the so-called retreating of the flood. As it poured off, much of what we see, it carved the landscape and so when you look at the canyons along um, the east coast of Australia or, or uh, in the McDonnell Ranges, it's the post-flood. So you, you, a little bit complicated here because you've got, one, the flood deposited the sediments, the Lord then raised the land, and then the water on top of that washed off at phenomenal speeds and, and actually then recarve that. So here's one point I like to, to, to mention to Christians. Don't imagine that anything you see today existed prior to the flood. It did not. That's very impressive and uh, is very much food for thought. So when you talk about that runoff after a catastrophic flood of the level's biblical proportions, then those sorts of other iconic landscapes that we might think of, like the Grand Canyon and uh, many others that people might be picturing in their minds even now, these are the sorts of things that would have been carved in the huge capacity and the, uh, the, the stress on the land that came from the runoff from floodwater. Absolutely. In fact, it's been denied for many years, but in more recent years with Mount St. Helens explosion and the subsequent uh, eruptions that did occur, they created canyons that were spectacular in size when the mud flows occurred and the water flow occurred. Equally, when I think it was the Oroville Dam in the USA burst in a minor way, it actually cut uh, a massive a chasm into exceptionally resistant metamorphic rock, and it did it within hours. So we're becoming quite aware of the very power of water uh, as it flows off. And so now a lot of people go, okay, that's interesting. We never thought water was that capable. Now, they're minor incidents, seriously, compared to global drainage. Ron, when you're speaking to groups and you travel widely, you're one of the great speakers in the team at Christian Creation Ministries International. You come across people who are rusted on evolutionists and they heard that someone from Creation Ministries was coming. They thought we'd better go along and just tear to pieces this Mickey Mouse scientist. And people come in and they start to hear some of these perspectives that you bring which are, uh, as you say, uh, developed over decades of your own personal experience traveling the world, 
What happens in the mind of that person who says, I'm a Rastodon evolutionist, I could never believe that God stuff, and then they start to hear things that challenge what they have always understood from their university studies and, and their their own understanding of evolutionary theory? What happens in the mind of that person when they're exposed to these different ideas? Well, we get two types of people outside those who believe in creation. There, there are Christians who are still struggling with creation. Now, they're quite open to the discussion and they listen intently and uh, they, they, they love all, they, they'll ask scientific questions and, and then they'll, a lot of them just go away happy. They go, right, I never thought of looking at it from that perspective. I didn't realize that data existed and so on. With the, uh, the evolutionists and um, uh, people who are not Christians, they tend not to come in, but I have been in environments every now and then where I'm speaking to a largely secular audience. Now, I, I won't uh, do a, a you know, soft-hearted Christian message in those cases. <laughs> I'm, I, at those points, I remember Paul, and he spoke openly. So when I was in a university recently, I did speak quite openly and bluntly. And uh, on that day or in the following day, six evolutionary scientists gave their life to Christ because they had right. not thought of looking at it from another perspective. And when they see the data then repackaged and able to explain in a simpler model, here's the point, it's a simpler model. Why do we go looking for complicated imaginary solutions when we have staring us right in the face, the evidence sits there in the landscape and, and in all the evidence of the landscapes and the fossils. And so on that day was a real blessing to see those people um, eventually give their lives to Christ. Is it, is it the case that oftentimes ad academics love to complicate things because that's where their next thesis paper or their next research paper that's going to be published in some reputable journal somewhere? Is this one of the reasons why people do get into complication and, and are they, they're certainly searching because that's why they're doing research. Uh, but an openness to the facts, I think, is what you're saying here, because when people are exposed to what you're saying is the obvious, then, of course, you have to come back to basics. And it's a simple model, the way that God has created. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not challenging academics because I, having been one, um, we are encouraged to be entrepreneurial innovative, to look outside the square. And so even Christian academics will look outside the square. Um, the, the challenge comes back as to what can you do with what you uncover? And will, will it be acceptable uh, in the literature? And so on. And so um, I, I guess there's a it, – it's, it's, you're caught between a rock and a hard place. One, you have to be thinking alternative. Two, you almost have to – uh, also agree at the same time with the existing paradigms, with the existing belief system. So I find many, many academics, myself was one, was caught between this rock and the hard place. And so it does limit your capacity to express yourself of what you have come across and what you want to share with people. Um, you have a moral dilemma here because do. you want to show your expertise in research you want to break new ground and you want to think through the issues that perhaps no one's ever thought through before. But in doing so, you recognize that there will be those who will be influenced by that level of thought yes. and they'll be captured off onto almost an, a scientific ideological path, uh, which hopefully will lead them back around to uh, the simple 
uh, formation as we understand as creationists. But uh, but people are they're on journeys left, right, and centre, and it's influencing an awful lot of people, perhaps in a, a direction that is anti-God. Yes, and they're not necessarily aware of it. That's that's because it's a culture that you are working in and living in. And I guess the blessing that I was given as a young honours student in my earliest days was a supervisor who said, never, ever reject the data as you see. Do not, do not look for complications. Do not accept the models that I may have taught you. Always look for the simplest solution. In other words, keep it simple. And so I lived with that. And as I went through life, I saw it was not widely accepted to keep it simple, uh, to look at the data. And I understood why, though, because the pressures on academics are very, very intense at times. Now, there, there are numerous cases in the media at the moment of academics who have been sacked because they challenged a superior member of academia. And that's the sadness that it's reached at this point in time, that the very creativity to create something new is actually can be used actually to in a detrimental way to to cost you. Ron, let's just quickly, as we wrap up, come back to the introduction that I made when we came into this conversation, this idea of scientists coming across the way that they can make a fossil in a single 24-hour period. We've had a wonderful conversation, the ins and outs and uh, coming around that issue. That in itself challenges this idea of millions or billions of years that evolutionists are thinking of when it comes to fossil formation. What are your thoughts for the person who might be, even at this moment, saying, I'd have to check that data a little bit more closely. I'm not really sure about what that is. I'll have to read the journal article. But what's your your thoughts for the person who is actually challenged by hearing that sort of information about how they might reset a direction about integrity and about a moral uh, placement of what they might be studying in their scientific pursuits. Mm. Neil, I'm I'm very pleased you've asked that, actually, because the fossil in a day did indicate something unique about the sediment, and that is that when they put the sediment into that high-pressure and high-temperature environment, the sediment was the feature that absorbed the liquids from the body. If the liquids are not absorbed, whether they're volatile liquids and, and uh, uh, other forms of liquids, then what happens, fossilization cannot occur. What you end up with and what the taphonomists have found all along is mush. Under pressure and temperature alone, that's all you get. Only when they place it with a sediment, under pressure did you actually get the liquids forced out of the organism and fossilization began. In other words, what they've confirmed is that fossilization doesn't take millions of years. It ha- You have to get the liquids out. How do you get them out? You have to place pressure. If you can't do it experimentally, what's the only way of doing it? You need to have a lot of sediment piled up tens or hundreds of meters deep to create the pressure and the temperature to force liquids out. Otherwise, in a very short period, fossilization will not occur. You'll end up simply with a, with a, with a basic mush liquid. It is a challenge to those who are on the evolutionary side of the debate. And uh, I guess my prayer is that in a conversation like this, uh, that listeners might be firmly on the creation side of the debate. And the challenge here and the encouragement to listeners to do some more research, and I'd point people to the 10,000-plus articles that you can find on the creation.com website. 10,000 articles about almost everything you can imagine and some places there to do some research and get some insights from 
godly scholars, godly scientists who are putting their views forward that support creation, not evolution. Ron Neller has been our guest. He's a geomorphologist. He's one of the team, a fabulous team at Creation Ministries International. Creation.com if you want to be in touch with Ron. Uh, Ron, always love getting these in-depth conversations with you. And, uh, you know, for some listeners, they'll be finding a little hard to follow. Others will have been hanging on every word and uh, just want to appreciate you very much. Thank you for your good work. God's uh, Godspeed for you as you continue to serve him in the gift that you have. Thanks for being with us on 2020. Thank you, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.